Hello. Wind down your social conversations so we can get started with Grand Rounds. Good morning. Uh, I'm really delighted to be introducing Dr. Andrew. Um, he's been here before um, and presented very interesting topics. Um, his qualifications are impeccable. He trained at Cincinnati Children's, but then he spent quite a bit of time uh, in the office of the Chief Medical Examiner of New York City, which I suspect means that he has seen everything. Um, we're very fortunate to have had him as the Chief Medical Examiner in New Hampshire for a number of years now, and he's developed uh, uh, a lot of important programs, like looking at the uh, oversight of all neonatal deaths, for example, um, uh, the whole issues around uh, SIDS and site investigation and the evolving sort of changes in how uh, infant death is managed. Um, and now he's going to talk with us about an equally important and very troubling aspect that touches us all, not just in pediatrics, but sort of societally and across multiple domains. And that's, that's the issue of the changing landscape of drug abuse and um, the, um, the fact that the people who are uh, the providers of uh, drugs outside of prescriptions uh, are more innovative than drug companies. So uh, I'm anxious to hear this talk. Thank you. Well, every uh, substance abuse season or epoch you know, sort of has its dominant substance. I mean, in my lifetime, uh, starting in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, heroin held sway, and then that gave way to cocaine in the, in the 70s and the 80s, and then, uh, you know, crack sort of emerged in the 90s. And as we, as we moved into the, to the next century, there was this scourge, this epidemic of prescription drug abuse, prescription opioids in particular, uh, became more and more of a problem. But this continues to evolve, and we've sort of circled back uh, to heroin as uh, the dominant agent, although we will be talking uh, a bit about what seems to be displacing heroin these days. But what I think lies farther in the future for us, because we're just starting to see sprinkles of it now, is the rise of the synthetics uh, in terms of not only their potency, but their impact on all of us. Uh, as you look at, I started as medical examiner in New Hampshire in 1997, and at that time, we typically saw between 40 and 50 drug deaths a year in the state of New Hampshire. Um, it has continued to escalate since that time. Uh, we passed 200 for the first time in 2011, and you can see the nearly exponential rise just from 2011 up through 2014. And during this era is when our concerns were peaked regarding prescription drug abuse or uh, uh, diversion of prescription drugs, misuse of prescription drugs, opiates in particular. And then came the genesis of this discussion regarding the development of an pres electronic prescription monitoring program, et cetera, et cetera. But with all of that focus on prescription drugs, you know, nailing that proverbial jello to the wall allowed the emergence of yet another problem, and that is the problem 
of uh, heroin and now fentanyl. This is a little busy, but what I want to emphasize here, and obviously the focus of our attention is this part of the graph. Uh, it's typically the, uh, and that circle has been displaced uh, for whatever reason. That should be our 20-somethings to 50-somethings, uh, presumably uh, what is, what is uh, typically thought of as our most productive segment of society is the one that, at least in New Hampshire, is bearing the brunt of these drug deaths. There is something about the Y chromosome. It just, uh, <laughs> uh, when you're talking about any high-risk activity, this sort of split is almost always the, uh, always the case. It goes anywhere from two to one to three to one. In this particular instance, uh, while there was a narrowing, a seeming narrowing of the gap during this age of prescription drug abuse, with the, the rise of the illicits again, uh, the males have uh, taken their dominant place. The vast majority of these are certified by our agency as accidental deaths. There's no sufficient evidence. As a matter of fact, there's an abundance of evidence that that outcome was not intended by that decedent. Uh, and you can see by looking at this graph that the suicides, the blue uh, uh, bars, remain relatively static. Also, the agents that are typically seen in suicides are not the kind of agents that we're, are, we're seeing in these accidental deaths. The suicides typically involve cocktails of uh, benzodiazepines, anti, antidepressants, uh, over-the-counter acetaminophen, diphenhydramine, and the like, whereas these accidental deaths involve uh, opiates, opioids, and uh, uh, the synthetics. The driver, as I have indicated, at least in recent years, has been opioids and opiates. And there was a time when we were very, very jazzed about methadone in this state. That was part of that discussion about prescription drug abuse. Well, methadone has simply taken its place with the other fellow travelers at this point. And what comprises these other opioids? Well, it's, it's clearly heroin. But in recent years, fentanyl. And it's not the fentanyl that you may be uh, familiar with or use as clinicians. Um, the fentanyl that is under, for legitimate use is typically about 10 times more potent than morphine. It is marketed either as an intravenous uh, medication or parenteral medication. Uh, it is uh, distributed as a patch. Uh, for time release, uh, subcutaneous uh, 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 time release, or as a lollipop for folks that are unable to, to tolerate uh, oral medication. And these transdermal patches and uh, uh, lollipops are, uh, uh, are in wide use across the country for chronic, unremitting, uh, supposedly non-cancer pain. All of you are familiar, some of you have, are very familiar with that image that uh, appeared in an uh, AAP report some years ago of uh, the youngster reaching into the, into the wastebasket for the used fentanyl patch, and certainly a child can mistake a fentanyl lollipop uh, for uh, a candy. But this is not the fentanyl that I'm talking about, right? The fen fentanyl certainly has abuse potential, as does any opioid, and it is not uncommon in our office and in any medical legal office around the country to find two, three, four, five, or more fentanyl patches on a decedent. 
Uh, sometimes the fentanyl uh, is actually sucked off the back of the pen. This is a series of surveillance videos of a man who picked up his prescription and couldn't wait to get it home before he started sucking the the uh, fentanyl off of the uh, off of the patch. What I'm talking about is illicit, illicitly produced fentanyl, typically in laboratories in Mexico. And uh, these Mex, uh, this, uh, uh, these are it's e it's easy to formulate, as are its cogeners, and we'll talk about that momentarily. They're using the already existing distribution infrastructure from Mexico, coming right up I-93 and I-95 from Miami all the way up to Canada. And this, these alterations that these illicit labs make markedly amplify the potency of this agent. I, I don't want to torture those of you who, who hated organic chemistry when you were in, uh, uh, in undergrad or, or, or what have you. But one of the first elicits that was picked up uh, by laboratories was alpha-methyl fentanyl. And it was simply a matter of substituting a methyl group at this position. And you'll note that it's 200, a simple methyl group. And they, that made this substance 200 times uh, more potent than morphine. Uh, the latest one seems to, uh, that, uh, that has been located, we've not isolated it here in New Hampshire as far as I know, but has been reported in other parts of the country, is 3-methyl fentanyl, and uh, estimated to be as much as 3,000 times as potent as morphine. It is marketed just like heroin is. It looks like heroin, it is packaged like heroin, and the, at the level of the street distributor, or certainly buyer, there is no knowledge that it is not heroin. So you can imagine the habituated user of heroin purchasing X amount, using the amount that they're typically used to using, and obviously that is a recipe for disaster. But uh, there was a recent arrest, as a matter of fact, in the Lakes region, uh, and the, the street-level distributor, the one who was arrested, swore up and down he thought he was selling heroin, uh, and his entire uh, stash was tested uh, positive for pure fentanyl. And that was the pattern that we saw. The first reports of heroin laced with fentanyl came out of western Pennsylvania, at least in the east, came out of western Pennsylvania toward the end of 2013. It was one of those, hey, we saw this here, be on the lookout for kind of questions, or kind of, uh, of bulletins. And sure enough, we saw our first heroin slash fentanyl case uh, in December of 2014. And through the first months of 2014, we typically saw that heroin-fentanyl mix. But as spring melted into summer, we saw more and more pure, her uh, excuse me, pure fentanyl deaths. And that remains uh, the pattern uh, through uh, the early part of 2015. The focus, though, today is not on those agents, although these, uh, this illicitly produced fentanyl, I, I suppose you could categorize as a, th a synthetic agent. Uh, ecstasy has been around for a while. Its cousin, Molly, 
which has been, I guess, popularized by a, a, a vulgar pop artist that our daughters watched when, uh, when she was younger. Uh, and more of the sort of sweet ingenue, but uh, she isn't that anymore. But anyway, uh, ecstasy is uh, a synthetic analog of amphetamine and mescaline, and thus has very, very similar pharmacological properties as those agents. Wide variety of street names. This is, you know, th these, these street names, as far as I know, are as out of date as I am right now, and they may be calling it a bunch of other things. But uh, the, I don't know how many of you are, are, are uh, familiar with rave culture or, or, or ravers, but typically these are outdoor concerts or they're held in, in, uh, in large warehouses, empty warehouses, and they are marketed as uh, you know, alcohol-free events, uh, and uh, that's what grabs the, the kids and gets them in there. But at these events, large amounts of ecstasy are, is sold right there. And because of the concerns about alteration of ecstasy, they've even built in some safety features at these concerts, and I'll, I'll uh, mention that in just a moment. School administrators and educators are generally familiar with the uh, sort of trappings of kids that are uh, that that use ecstasy. And uh, the anybody know what the pacifiers and the lollipops are all about? I'm sorry. Bruxism. Bruxism. Yeah, there's a lot of teeth grinding that this particular agent. Uh, seems to induce, and uh, the, uh, uh, the, these things in the mouth sort of help mitigate that. Uh, it is, I suppose, an urban myth that uh, this, these um, products like Vicks uh, entrapped in a mask sort of enhance the experience, but uh, uh, the masks, the, visc, uh, the, the Vicks, the, uh, the, the little light glow sticks that they... Uh, uh, that they uh, use at the concerts, and water, 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 water. This induces a tremendous uh, thirst, and that is one of the things that they do at these concerts. You can't bring anything in. You remember, this is an alcohol-free venue. You can't bring anything in. But the organizers of the concert are delighted to sell you bottled water for $8 a bottle. <laughs> The, medic, uh, the, uh, the pills are typically secreted in innocent-looking containers. They're not likely to have a vitamin container at school, but certainly they'll have uh, mints and, and Tic Tacs and so forth and so on. And if the, if, the synthetic producer, or the, if the producer of the synthetic presses it in such a way that it can look like one of these products, all the better. It's typically an oral medication. They don't grind it and snort it or anything of that nature. And uh, depending on where one is purchasing it, the cost per pill is uh, uh, relatively economical. Obviously, the, the disposable income of today's middle school student is far beyond anything in my wildest dreams when I was in the seventh grade. But uh, you can see that the profit margin is really quite huge for the producer and manufacturers of these things. It can look like virtually anything. Remember, these are produced in a clandestine laboratory. So they can press them uh, to, 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 look, to, to be in just about any shape and have any sort of logo on them. So how does the consumer you know, know what they're getting? Well, that's another feature that's built in 
uh, to these uh, rave events by the organizers of the events. There are safety stations wherein you can, you know, you purchase the pill from Joe and you can take the pill to Fred over at the safety station who will test it for you. And oh, this is ecstasy, you're good to go, have a great time. Yet seized products, and I, the, the, the print was quite small on the previous slide as well as this, these often test for either multiple agents or not having any MDMA at all in them. This one is pure caffeine, for example. These two are pure caffeine. Some of them have PCP, either uh, in combination with the, with the ecstasy or are pure PCP. So the, so the child doesn't know what they're, what they're buying necessarily. And, and we're going to circle back to this momentarily. Um, uh, the synthetic cannabinoids that are easily obtained may be laced with MDMA or its cogeners as well. It is a relatively short-acting agent, again, ideal for use at these raves, which typically will start after midnight and generally go through the night until sunrise. Um, you remember they are, they are analogs of amphetamine and mescaline, so this group of symptoms should make some sense to you given the, uh, the basic skeleton of the drugs. But there is a crash that occurs afterwards. And uh, uh, the, the dangerous part of the crash might be uh, the paranoid feelings or the feelings of anxiety that the person has afterwards and they're likely, or they are more likely, let me say, uh, to do irrational things in, those, in that after effect. What actually leads to a fatal result leading them to my office has more to do with renal failure and the tremendous hyperthermia because of the revved metabolism that these agents cause. This is where municipalities have sort of stepped in. Uh, there may not be anything illegal about the rave itself. Uh, it, they've obtained all the permits, everything is above board, but if, if the community, particularly the emergency uh, uh, response teams, know that there is such an event, they may set up first aid stations nearby with cooling blankets and uh, the things that they need to do to intervene with acute intoxication by these agents. And they will stage uh, a respectful distance away from, uh, uh, from the rave, uh, close enough to get the, uh, the kids there for first aid, but uh, uh, far enough that uh, it's not deemed to be some sort of harassment uh, by the man. Methamphetamine. Fortunately, we don't see a lot, and I don't know, I, I don't know if it's cultural. I, I, I don't know what the difference here is in the cultural milieu. I believe you had one year here, uh, oh no, she was, she was the uh, chair for a while, Penny Grant. Penny Grant was here for a bit, and her roots were in Oklahoma. In the, in the um, southwest, well, actually west of the Mississippi, methamphetamine continues to be a huge problem, and yet we only see uh, uh, scattered bits of it here and there. And certainly we haven't had a lot of uh, fatalities, at least in our jurisdiction, uh, with methamphetamine. But it continues to be a problem uh, uh, for law enforcement and for clinicians. They see a fair amount of methamphetamine-related um, issues in the ED, and the, uh, the police are charged with knocking over these mobile laboratories, which can be very, very dangerous. 
These things are essentially toxic waste dumps with hazardous chemicals uh, that can be a danger uh, to those uh, going in to try and manage these scenes. Uh, uh, we know that there are legitimate uses uh, for methamphetamine, but when it is abused, uh, it's, it's not taken, obviously, as it has been designed to have been taken. This is a very rapidly acting drug, but it can last for up to, its effects can persist for up to 12 hours. Its symptom, toxidrome, if you will, is very similar to that which we discussed for ecstasy. But this agent, there's more in terms of uh, uh, an evidence base in terms of the literature on long-term <coughs> effects of use with this agent, and those are listed here as well. You note the overlap there with the irritability, the paranoia, the aggressive sort of behavior in the long-term uh, users of this. My daughter, um, who's now at Champlain College, which is absolutely riveted by uh, what's what's the uh, uh, Breaking Bad, <laughs> and uh, just she's just endlessly fascinated with that whole sort of culture that develops around it. And uh, I never, you know, I would see bits and pieces of pieces of it. I never sat down to watch any single uh, episode of it per se, but they did seem to capture the culture of it reasonably well. Its toxicity, again, given the basic skeleton that we're working with here, it's a very sympathomimetic drug, tachycardia and other tachyarrhythmias, elevations in blood pressure to the, to the, to the point where you can ha actually have or stimulate a hypertensive crisis and intracerebral hemorrhage, hyperthermia and seizure activity as well. This agent, like MDMA and Molly before it, act by, or at least uh, elicit this sympathomimetic response by increasing the release of various neurotransmitters in the synapse or at the neuromuscular junction. In that respect, they are quite similar uh, to, in their action, to cocaine. And also, there is, and lawyers love to play with this one, with this one. its mere presence in the right context of a fatal case will lead Dr. Duval or myself to rule that that is the cause of that person's death, regardless of the concentration isolated in the blood. And in legal proceedings, attorneys are, are, are very enamored with trotting out you know, charts about what lethal levels are and so forth and so on. But there are so many very uh, variables involved in when the dose was taken, uh, uh, how the dose was taken, how much of a dose was taken. Uh, we don't rely necessarily on levels, and occasionally that is made, uh, that is sort of twisted around to make us look like we, we're simply guessing at the cause of death. Depending on how the drug is produced, it may have varying sorts of appearance. What I'm used to seeing is pink, but it can be many other uh, uh, many other culture or many other colors. Um, and the uh, unless you're talking about crystal meth, which is looks very well crystalline, uh, it generally has some sort of color to it. To achieve that sort of crystalline appearance, it requires a little more in the way of sophistication on the part of the operator of the laboratory, more washing, more purification of the agent. 
obviously the more washing and the more purification, uh, this is producing a, uh, a much more potent product at the end of the line. Again, relative, in relative terms, uh, economically priced, at least for the, the junk methamphetamine, crystal meth fetches uh, a, a slightly higher price. But the pink appearance is typically due to the over-the-counter cold medicines that are used as the uh, uh, basis around which these other chemicals are used to extract the methamphetamine. Uh, and that's why, you know, all this stuff is behind the counter now and you can only buy X number of bottles of, you know, pseudofedrin or, or whatever it is that you want uh, to, to uh, treat your child's cough. If it is highly purified, it does take on this sort of crystalline appearance. Same drug, it's just a diff different level of purity because of a higher degree of purification and washing. <clears throat> Methamphetamine has its own set of, uh, of uh, props. Uh, these sort of meth pipes and these crystalline containers and the small little uh, plastic resealable bags are, are, are typical of this. If it isn't this crushed crystalline material, it's going to be rocks of this <coughs> pink or blue or purple uh, uh, material. I had mentioned the dangers of just producing this stuff. These mobile labs or labs that are based in sheds or somebody's apartment or in a motel room. Uh, uh, utilize a lot of dangerous chemicals in the extraction and the production of methamphetamine. And uh, some of these are explosive. For example, uh, in a, a recent case, not in the state, uh, where there was intelligence to suggest that a methamphetamine laboratory was on operation, the team went in, the people had vacated the, quote, laboratory, but on opening the refrigerator, the whatever electrical sort of activity that occurs, I don't know, it's a little spark or something, uh, 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 initiated an explosion in that particular site. Children that are removed from active methamphetamine-producing sites should be vigorously screened for the presence uh, either on their bodies or systemically for the effects of any one or a number of these agents as well. We've heard a lot about bath salts in more recent years. Uh, fortunately, once again, New Hampshire doesn't seem to, uh, we like our opiates here, so we haven't seemed to drift too far toward the bath salts. But Bangor, Bangor, Maine, is like the bath salt capital <laughs> of North America. I don't, I don't know how that happens necessarily. It, has, it must have something to do with the, the, the drug subculture in a particular jurisdiction or whatever. But bath salts have really been kicking Bangor around now for about five or six years. This is uh, a, another sort of, of synthetic based on, um, in this case, it was, a, it was a research chemical that was developed uh, uh, back in the Paleozoic era there, back in 1969, uh, for treatment of chronic fatigue. You will see that theme again when we talk about another synthetic later. Um, another version, if you will, or another type of so-called bath salt is an analog of an agent that's found in the plant cot that is abused uh, uh, or used, I should say, well, abused, let's just call it what it is, abused uh, by youth in uh, Africa. 
These are marketed in such a way to attract the eye and the attention of that middle school or high schooler. Uh, colorful packaging, uh, glittery, glittery foil, uh, uh, cultural references, and um, it generally sort of gets there. And they, you know, they market it for boys and they market it for girls. Not quite as easily to get a hold of as it used to be in the past where it was frequently uh, uh, marketed in convenience stores and gas stations. Most jurisdictions, including most, I believe, here in New Hampshire, have uh, outlawed that. But it's still quite easily obtained on the Internet. Uh, still a relatively new player in terms of substance abuse in the United States, but the problem with it is its ever-shifting chemical nature. It, too, or these, these agents, likewise elicit their uh, pharmacological action by the, either the release of, of uh, neurotransmitters or by blocking the reuptake of certain neurotransmitters. It is much less costly than some of the other agents that may be available to that youngster and therefore may ultimately be the drug of choice <laughs> simply for economic reasons. It can be uh, taken in any one of the four classic ways. And the distributors of this garbage, you know, it allegedly can, can, can uh, deny any responsibility for any bad outcomes because they simply stamp on the package. And if you look carefully at the package, and I know that every youngster that buys these reads all the fine print on the packaging, it says it's not for human consumption. Legal problem solved. We told the consumer it's not for human consumption, and they did this anyway. The route by which one takes it obviously is going to uh, determine when the onset is and how long the, uh, the uh, uh, agent uh, uh, produces its activity. This rather busy chart is comprised of a group or a list of symptoms that have been reported in various either case reports or group studies or even controlled studies with these agents. There's a tremendous overlap in the uh, 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 classic symptoms, and these are highlighted in this slide, of serotonin syndrome. And I think at the basis of many of the fatalities involving these agents, at its core, it's basically a serotonin syndrome. You can see the dramatic increase, at least from the perspective of the call center at the poison control of bath salts. And this is United States data. This isn't New Hampshire or the northern New England poison control data. But uh, the number of calls just simply inquiring about it or, you know, my friend got a hold of has increased dramatically. Obviously, this hasn't gone unnoticed by those who attempt to control this, sorts of th this sort of thing. But the problem is, as soon as you ban X, the chemists will move to Y. Now, clearly, the feds have a little more legislative leeway in terms of how they word their control language. But it, it, it remains a battle constantly to stay in front of 
a methyl group here, a fluoride there, or a carboxy group removed over here. Because you have an entirely new agent. Where you banned this, you didn't ban that. Which now introduces the subject of synthetic cannabinoids. Once thought to be pretty benign, but in this race to control, they have become more and more and more potent and have induced more and more bizarre behavior. That being said, I'm not aware, either anecdotally or in the literature, of a specific death related specifically to the intoxication by this agent. That's not to say there have not been fatalities related to behavior induced by the ingestion of this material. But there hasn't been a documented direct toxicity leading to a fatal result in this, uh, with these agents. Again, the gas stations and convenience stores are less of a source in the communities that have outlawed. Now, how many, how many gas stations and convenience stores that have developed a following and a reputation for selling these substances have them behind the counter and kids know that they can go to that store and get them? We can't know. But we are naive to think that that's not still going on. Nevertheless, there's always the internet, and you can get it over the internet quite easily. They're packaged and marketed in the same way that the bath salts are. Colorful, foil packages, et cetera, et cetera. And all they are is any dry, leafy plant material. They're not growing this stuff. The, the dry, leafy plant material could come out of their backyards. It's simply sprayed with the agent that they're producing in the laboratory. And it is the spray that is on the, uh, uh, the, the vegetative material uh, that causes the uh, toxic effects. As I said before, with increasing potency comes the, uh, the increased risk of toxicity. In a, there was a batch in Colorado, and I think I just read something either yesterday or that, certainly this week, of a similar sort of uh, cluster of emergency room visits in another jurisdiction. And it has to do with the distribution of a batch of this sort of stuff that seems to be more potent. Note that the symptomatology that predominated here is that, that, is that which we have been talking about over and over again. And it's that sympathomimetic, revved up metabolism. These have likewise been, uh, 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 there have been attempts to uh, regulate and to uh, um, uh, control these agents, but like bath salts, the producers of these continue to change the compound structure chemically to stay ahead of federal regulation. Our Dartmouth connection this morning is in this case. This is not a bath salt case. This is not a synthetic marijuana case. This is a synthetic psychedelic case. This youngster was 17. Uh, she was up from Connecticut with a boyfriend to attend the Grateful Dead concert at Meadowbrook. Nice venue for outdoor concerts. Uh, she uh, had a history of acting out and uh, some other, other sorts of issues. She had had some substance abuse issues as well. During the concert, uh, she left uh, her boyfriend, went to a restroom and reported to her boyfriend buying blotter papers 
that she was told were LSD by the person who she bought them from. She took, I believe, four of the blotter papers in her mouth. Within minutes, complained to the boyfriend of feeling what she described as being twitchy and feeling anxious since she wanted to leave the campground, uh, leave the concert area for their campground, which is what they did. She began to become very hot. So she went into the pond to swim wherein she developed seizure activity. Now this is all within 30 minutes of having ingested the material. This is a campground in an isolated area. It took 45 minutes for uh, an emergency medical response to arrive, at which time she was uh, already had you know over a half an hour of status epilepticus, uh, elevated temperature, her blood pressure was relatively stable still at that point, but she was tachycardic and tachypnic. She was transported to uh, DHMC, where Kepper was used to try and get her seizures under control, but clearly that long period of status epilepticus had taken its metabolic toll, and she developed uh, rhabdomyolysis, renal failure, hyperthermia, and uh, uh, developed, obviously, some troubling neurological signs. She lingered for nearly a week, uh, and eventually ended up having to go on hemodialysis because of her relentlessly increasing creatinine, and at some point developed uh, an elect uh, electroencephalographic picture of diffuse encephalopathy. She had a typical looking uh, CT scan of the brain and it was uh, uh, an initial toxicology screen. All that was detected of any significance was the fact that her lithium was sub subtherapeutic. Slightly elevated, well, moderately elevated white count, relentless uh, recalcitrant metabolic acidosis and uh, the, her screen for uh, drugs of abuse now remember this is a urine screen, uh, was positive only for cannabinoids. LSD in particular, or in specific, uh, was uh, ruled out, as were bath salts. This is just a graphic portrayal of everything that we talked about before. You can see the, the red line is the dramatically increasing uh, creatinine. Her spike in uh, uh, CK was earlier in her hospital course, and that started to drift down. By day six, uh, it was clear uh, that uh, uh, this was, was not going to reverse its course. Her repeat head CT had a catastrophic uh, appearance. There's virtually no gray-white differentiation there. Diffusely swollen brain, you can't see the cisterns anymore. Uh, uh, this is clearly not a survivable situation. She was declared brain dead and, appropriately, referred to uh, uh, the medical examiner's office uh, for um, autopsy examination. I'd like, as a side note, but an important one, is that we were called by the New England Organ and Tissue Bank with a request for organs and tissues on this girl. Um, and we have to have a very good, by we I mean Dr. Duval and myself, have to have a very, very good reason not to release organs and tissues. And uh, we, we saw none here. So those were released to the organ and tissue bank. Why would they be interested in this girl? I don't know. I don't know what their criteria are, but I was shocked that they called, but glad to release the organs. 
So she, she came to us, obviously, after procurement of a lot of major organs. The point to remember for uh, those who think like attorneys out there is that we do get a complete report from the procurement agency on the status of those organs, biopsies of those organs, so we know what the status of those organs are. So if, this, if something were to come to litigation, they can't claim that you know, something here you know, killed the child. Well, you know, the heart's working in Peoria. You know, how could it be her heart? But that's another debate for another day. <laughs> the brain was quite, uh, uh, was, was, uh, was, uh, quite soft, and that, is, that just mirrors the six-day uh, hospital stay in swollen brain. It's just respirator brain. That's not a specific finding due to anything. It was only slightly swollen. Her lungs, once again, uh, like her brain, simply reflected her six-day comatose state, and she had developed uh, what pathologists call diffuse alveolar damage, what our clinician colleagues call uh, ARDS. Uh, everything else, that at least that I had available to me to examine, uh, was unremarkable. She had little focal um, uh, deposits of uh, infiltrates of lymphocytes in her myocardium. This does not a diagnosis of myocarditis make. Uh, you have to have, in addition to some uh, uh, lymphocytes, uh, actual destruction and necrosis of myocytes. This was uh, a, a, an incidental finding, once again, reflecting her, her ICU stay, as were these lung findings, as I mentioned before. <clears throat> On examining the brain histologically, uh, it, it simply was a brain that was consistent with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, and that I would imagine you would glean from her hospital course. The issue, obviously the central issue in this case, was what did she buy? What was it that caused her death? We have access to a regional ASCLAD-approved and accredited forensic reference laboratory and in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. They do our toxicology exclusively. And being aware of the existence of these synthetic psychedelics performed for us a panel looking for them, and indeed, 25I NBOME was isolated in the blood. It could not be quantified. Nevertheless, nothing else explains this girl's death, and her death was certified as due to the intoxication of this agent. And that did lead to a, uh, uh, Yoshi did a uh, poster at the American uh, Association of Neurology, and she also published this in Academic Forensic Pathology this year. These designer hallucinogens, designer psychedelics, are packaged and marketed like LSD. Uh, you know, it's the summer of love all over again. And they're typically put on these blotter papers uh, and sold in that fashion. Very rarely they're sold in some sort of solution or as a powder, but the trademark uh, or the hallmark is a sale as these blotter papers. It does indeed act as LSD because, like LSD, it is a potent serotonin receptor agonist. It was originally isolated and synthesized as a research agent, and then sort of put aside because it had limited utility, but it was found usually uh, during internet sort of chatter 
by those who were interested in mind-altering drugs, and that's when they started playing around with the basic skeletal backbone of the, of the agent to develop, to develop new products. As I had said before, uh, powders, liquid solutions, but most of the time it's on blotter paper that is taken either underneath the tongue or uh, in the buck on the buccal membrane. It has its own set of, you know, sort of street names, but uh, what the youth or whoever is purchasing this thinks they're getting, or what they're typically told they're getting, is LSD. This agent did not get out of animal research. It wasn't until it became a drug of abuse in uh, 2010 that human, uh, human use of this agent, not under any controlled circumstance, was described. Again, playing with the basic backbone, those that uh, uh, have the ability to do this can substitute various uh, moieties on the, back, on, the, on the skeletal background to increase its potency. In this particular instance, 25I, there is an iodine moiety and a 2-methoxybenzoyl group added to this backbone, and that's what makes 25I. There's 25C with a carbon over there. There's 25B with a, with a what's, what's B, boron or something? Whatever it is over there. And each of these alterations can alter the potency of the agent. The acid makes it, uh, uh, it's easy to, to, to make it as a, as a salt form and it's precipitated out as this powder. The powder is then reconstituted in a liquid and it is either sprayed or dropped onto these blotter papers. So there's no quality control here, right? There's no laboratory. <laughs> so the dose from one blotter paper to another might vary by substantial amounts. You remember, she was symptomatic within minutes. And that's consistent with the pharmaco pharmacology of this agent. These dosages are not, um, as I said before, on these blotter papers, you, you don't know from one paper to the next how much is on an individual blotter paper. It's not like you know, a 50 milligram pill is always a 50 milligram pill. So there's no way for the consumer to know how much of this that they're getting. One thing that is definitely different from LSD, and if you happen to be evaluating that unknown toxin sort of thing, and they're able to tell you that they had this strong, maybe unpleasant to them, metallic taste, and they thought they bought LSD. It's not LSD, you're dealing with 25I, or one of its cogeners. The symptom or the, the toxidrome is very, very similar in terms of uh, what those of you of, of a certain age recall about LSD. <laughs> Euphoria, you know, soft tingling sensation, this floating business, colors, all of that nonsense that they, that they seem to like about these things. Like MDMA, bruxism, the shakes, nausea is another feature critical feature that differentiates this. I am not aware of nausea being a big feature of acute LSD intoxication. We don't see LSD intoxication much anymore, if at all. But nausea is a big feature. These kids will have repetitive, um, uh, those that are prone to the nausea of, uh, associated with this agent, uh, repetitive 
very forceful vomiting over and over again. The first published series that I'm aware of came out of Great Britain. And you can see that there's a tremendous amount of overlap, not only with the other, the other agents that we've already talked about, but with the toxidrome in our own index case here out of DHMC, in terms of the tachycardia, the hypertension, agitation, and seizures, etc. Dr. Polkis in West Virginia uh, studied two uh, males who survived the use of this agent. This one, I think, is an astonishing sort of survival, but uh, they had a similar sort of toxidrome as our case and as the British cases before them. Agitation, uh, tachycardia, seizures, kidney failure, rhabdomyolysis, lots and lots of overlap. Um, those of you that cruise the Internet for head sites looking for uh, information on drugs of abuse, and I recommend that you do that, uh, 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 particularly those of you who uh, treat adolescents, uh, they actually produce, produce consumer warnings. They care about their people. And if you go to Arrowwood, which is the granddaddy of all of these sites, you know, the caution, this stuff should not be snorted. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's barely visible. You know, be careful out there. Animal New York went one further and said, don't eyeball this stuff. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew you shouldn't eyeball 25i? You know, I was just thinking about doing that the other day. <laughs> but they do it because they care. So, you know, is this, is this for real? Is this an isolated thing? Well, it's, more, it's, 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 it's for real, and it's, there's not a huge literature yet. I mean, that's why we got our case report published because not a lot is known yet. Uh, the blue stars are media reports. The red stars are documented, either published cases or direct uh, communication that I've had with uh, medical examiner's office. Now, it, you know, these, are, these stars are in two different states, but this was the same episode. One boy happened to be from North Dakota and one from Minnesota. Uh, they overdosed on this agent, and that was reported in the media. Another media report, this guy, a single drop at Voodoo Fest in Baton Rouge uh, died uh, after, after taking a 25i. In Scottsdale, Arizona, there was a fatality of an 18-year-old. And going to Florida, this was the first sort of documented one. This 17-year-old uh, was snorting. They did not isolate uh, the agent from his blood, but they did isolate it from a $10 bill that was rolled up in his pocket. Whether or not you accept that as the cause of his death, I'll leave up to you. A 16-year-old found floating in the river in, uh, in uh, uh, I believe, in Orlando. Uh, this one had uh, 25i documented in the postmortem blood. A Tennessee case involved <clears throat> the liquid form. It was out of a Visine bottle, uh, and uh, the guy gave it to the girl, and she was symptomatic within minutes. And uh, she had uh, uh, NBO, uh, NBOME in her postmortem blood. This case <clears throat> was the subject of uh, a very rigorous cross-examination when it went to court. Uh, the person who was being tried was actually a man in Washington State who mailed this material to his friend in West Virginia. Both the male and the female took the agent. The female had a fatal seizure within minutes. 
by fatal seizure, I mean status epilepticus because she arrested and couldn't be uh, resuscitated. Uh, <clears throat> the defense counsel for the guy in Washington said it was an alcohol and prescription drug-related overdose having nothing to do with 25i. 25i has never killed anybody. There's no literature on that. And they were right. At the time, there wasn't much literature on it. Uh, he was convicted. A uh, 14-year-old in Las Vegas, um, believed to be 25i, case, a fatal case in Maryland, and anecdotally, at least by media report, another two in North Carolina. So we are seeing more. It's not enough to develop a true evidence base yet. But the whole point of my presentation is this is what's next. The synthetics in their more potent forms are going to be what's next. They are the things that are going to drive that spike in that upward direction. We're just learning how to detect this stuff. And there are very few labs that are good at it. Uh, Dr. Polkless's lab in West Virginia is one of them. I mentioned the tissue donation. This liver from this girl was successfully transplanted here in New England. Her left kidney had to be discarded, but the right kidney was successfully transplanted in Maryland. Her heart valves were likewise procured, and those were used for uh, tissue donation. So, so lives were impacted despite, despite this being an intoxication death, which many of us somehow think, you know, you can. They, they asked me for the liver of a hepatitis C positive prisoner the other week. And I said, what are you, you going to do with this? And they said, you know, doc, you big dummy. There are hepatitis C positive people waiting for a liver transplant. Oh. You know, I should have had a VA. <laughs> this is what I mean. You can't stay in front of this stuff. Kratom. Who, you know, who's ever heard of Kratom? I'd never heard of Kratom. Well, they found it in Manchester. Some, uh, you know, a cop saw this in a convenience store. And um, it's yet another synthetic. It's another variation on this same theme. I don't know how many of you have been reading about Flaka, F-L-A-K-K-A, you know, it's, they're out there, and they're coming. Um, got about five minutes? Uh, so happy to take any questions. Wow, that's a very sobering presentation, so open for questions. Did Yoshi make it, by the way? She, did, she didn't make it. She, I think she might be on an away elected. She was the uh, neurology fellow in the ICU uh, who took care of this girl and really, really uh, dug into this case and was intent on, on getting information out. I've got to hand it to her. Nice poster at the uh, uh, neurology confab <coughs> and uh, a publication in our journal. So. Yes. So the cases in Manchester where they were buying stuff in the convenience stores and then we were trying to get Narcan on the ambulances, same stuff? I'm not sure I understand the question. Narcan right. Well, Narcan reverse. <coughs> oh, no, no. Narcan, uh, great for opiate, opioid, uh, uh, if given in a timely manner. But for these agents, no. It is, it is not effective. Yes, sir. I haven't dealt with uh, clinical care of substance abusers uh, for a long time, but 
one of the young men that I dealt with here at Dartmouth, uh, when I asked him how much his habit cost him, he at that time was into uh, uh, opioid abuse. He said about $200 a day. I said, where'd you get that? And he said, well, it's, it's pretty uh, uh, easy here. You can't prostitute because sex is pretty much for free. You can't steal and make any money because there are no good fences like there are in Austin or wherever it is. And so what you have to really do is addict your friends so they'll buy from you and you build up a chain of sort of supply and demand and everybody makes a little bit of money off their friends. And I thought that was a very interesting thing. Is that a realistic... Oh, it's, uh, uh, you, you are absolutely on point. You are absolutely on point. Clearly, the prostitu prostitution and the theft is there. That's part of the mix. But it's a pyramid scheme. What you've described as a pyramid scheme, and in a place like northern New England, New Hampshire in specific, you know, that is going to be a bigger part of the mix than the traditional sorts of things that would happen in a New York or a Boston or a Chicago. So yes, that's quite realistic. Even today, I don't know how long ago you heard that story, but yes. If the gas stations and other convenience stores are selling these items, what are they selling them under the guise as? I mean, what is... They're they sold as bath salts, not for human consumption. Bath? Pardon me? And yes. Do, and do people use it for that? No. No. <laughs> no. Why are we advertising who is selling it so that, so that we can all avoid those stores? Because I feel like pressure well, like that... Well, you're not going to... Target and Walmart are not going to... do. You know, you're okay buying bath salts at Target and Walmart. <laughs> Who would buy bath salts at a Sitco station? So if we advertise that the Sitco station is selling it, then all of us who are educated can avoid that Sitco. Don't you think we'd have some power to get them to stop selling it? Well, that's already been done in many, many jurisdictions. It, it, and I, I have it on the slide because at the time those regulations didn't, because this is, a, this is an evolving animal. Many localities, municipalities have have outlawed the sale of these things. So technically speaking, they shouldn't be out there. Those in the know may know to ask for them in a place that, you know, they would still, they're taking a chance of selling it to an undercover officer. But uh, uh, it's, it's not as readily available through that outlet anymore. Yes. This aspect of education of the public, it, I, I have been hearing a lot in the news about these overdose deaths from heroin because they're laced with fentanyl. Yes, sir. And I kept saying to myself, why? And, and they don't really say anywhere in these news reports that this is a synthetic... Well, they don't know. They don't know. When I get a media call, when I get a media call, every single one of them says, whoa, I didn't know that. Yes. So, no, they don't, they don't know that. And I think that we just had a, quote, heroin summit in Dover last week, and there was a lot of media there, and I, you know, gave a very truncated version of this. You know, I'm hoping that information gets out, but uh, 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 it's, it's, it's right now fentanyl's driving the train. It really is. And think about it. You're a heroin producer in Mexico. Do you want to have a big poppy field that the federales could come and just you know, torch, or do you want a nice, you know, compact laboratory and produce this garbage in, in kilo amounts? Uh, the risk is much lower and the economic return is much higher. You know, the irony of this is a, a, a simple marijuana 
in inhalation starts to sound pretty benign. Well, it does. It, you know, in in uh, uh, in uh, uh, in comparison, the and obviously this is another debate for another day. But you know, does does that does that marijuana represent a gateway? How many will you lose if they start on marijuana? Uh, I don't know the answers to those things, but the, it's a complicated question. Certainly, there are unintended consequences of the, the uh, decriminalization and, and, and legalization of cannabis. Uh, there, were, there have been now two reported cases of teenagers traveling on spring break to Colorado, uh, buying uh, uh, cannabis edibles. And once again, you expect these kids to read the fine print? No. If you buy a cannabis cookie, do we have Girl Scout cookie fans in here? You know the size of a Girl Scout cookie. It's gone from this to this, right? Today's Girl Scout cookie is about the size of a 50 cent piece. These uh, ed cannabis edibles are uh, packaged one at a time, about that size. You read the package, and it says, this is 16 servings. <laughs> now, how many kids are going to cut that cookie up into 16 pieces? It's not going to happen. Uh, uh, talk to the pediatricians at Denver Children's about the influx of pediatric intoxications on the basis of the edibles. So now the legislature is kind of looking at should we control the way those things are packaged and marketed and so forth. So uh, I didn't mean to get off on that tangent, but you're right. You're right. Uh, taken in isolation, it, it is pretty benign compared to this stuff. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tangled web. Yes, sir? Um, do you have any ideas why crystal meth did not spread as much to rural New England as it had through the Midwest and Appalachian? I think it's cultural. I, I really think it's cultural. This has always been opiate territory. And, you know, and I, don't, I, I, it, I cannot think of any other legitimate, it's easy to produce, and they're producing it in fairly large amounts here, but it just hasn't taken hold like the opiates have. And I, it's, it's a, it's a deep-seated cultural thing, I think. I don't have an evidence base for that. Yes, ma'am. We have the last question. Okay, just two quick questions. Bath salts that are real bath salts gotten by a target. Do they have anything like that? Any of the ingredients like? The no. Ones? Okay. And then, <laughs> is there any ramifications for, like, in, in the criminal system for um, having any of these things in possession? In possession. That I go. I, I'm not. I, oh, I'm not okay. up on the, the legal aspects of it. It's been in the media. Bath salts in Vermont have been. Uh, so possession is a problem there? Yeah, well, people, right, getting... Yeah, I, I'm not... Something else, having bath salts... I don't, know the, I don't know the specifics of the law. Those of you that were planning on buying bath salts for mom this weekend, <laughs> you know, just don't buy... Just don't go to Sitco to do it. My mom wanted this stuff to get the convenience. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>